This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. You know, I was tasked with speaking you, to you guys about what it means to confess Christ at the university. Specifically, this talk is titled, Robbing Temples and Crushing Idols. I've been involved in campus ministry at Indiana University here in Bloomington in one form or another since the fall of 2002 when I first came here as a student. Um, at that time, I was a clueless new Christian. I'd been a believer for about a year. Um, came to Christ in high school, senior year of high school. Um, I opted to major in religious studies because my dad didn't want me to go to a Christian college and I just wanted to talk about God and learn more about God and so I figured, well, at least in the religious studies department we can have conversations about God. There's some openness, right? And maybe the pagans have something to teach me, so that's what I did. Um, after nearly four years of being involved in Campus Crusade and InterVarsity, while my soul was slowly being destroyed in my classes, and while being involved in sexually, uh, sexually immoral relationship, I was enticed to come to a very small Wednesday morning Bible study led by a man named Tim Bailey. And now here I am. I helped start the campus ministry of this church. I joined the Pastors College. I was hired on as full-time staff. I'm now an instructor at the Pastors College. And now seven years later, we're taking on our second full-time staff worker, one of my original students from that very first fall in 2007. He's in the back row right there. Alex, say hi. Hi. That's Alex. All this means that I've been actively involved on the campus of university for around 12 years now. Now, 12 years is not a long time, but it is long enough for me to have seen students from every kind of, or just about every kind of church, every kind of home, every kind of situation imaginable. I cannot begin to tell you the number of students that I have seen crash and burn, who have forsaken Christ and the church and their families, who have fallen into serious sin, who have had their faith shaken or crushed by their professors. Students from good churches, students from bad churches, students from homeschool families, students from broken homes. It just doesn't matter. In fact, the sheer number of casualties among my own friends in college and my own near crash is one of the driving forces behind what I do. Make no mistake about it, college is war. Universities are hostile territory. All secular universities and most Christian ones too. Some are more hostile than others, but they're never a demilitarized zone. Ideas have consequences. Education is intrinsically a moral endeavor. Academic institutions necessarily and intentionally shape and form character. That makes it a battleground and a strategic one. In his 1987 book, The Closing of the American Mind, Alan Bloom writes this. Move this up here. Every educational system has a moral goal that it tries to attain and that informs its curriculum. It wants to produce a certain kind of human being. Now, Bloom is a pagan homosexual Jew, okay? Intellectual, academic. He's not a Christian. 
But he says every educational system has a moral goal that it tries to attain and that informs its curriculum. It wants to produce a certain kind of human being. Every educational system has a moral goal. Every educational system is aimed at producing a certain kind of man. The chair right there, the chair right up here in front. Every educational system is aimed at producing a certain kind of man. This becomes more obvious the more we think about it, right? Who decides what to teach and what not to teach? Who decides how to teach it? Is the goal simply to impart knowledge? Really? Okay, why? To what end? Where's the virtue in that? Knowledge in itself? Is knowledge useful? What's the good in utility? Who determines what's useful? Who determines what's not? How do they determine it? Why learn how to read? What's the point? To gain information? Why? To learn to communicate ideas? To what end? What kind of information are we seeking? What kind of information are we teaching? What's being taught? What's being withheld? Why? Who determines the goals? What beliefs undergird and drive those goals? Education is aimed at producing a certain kind of man. What kind of man do our educators want to produce? That's the question. What kind of character do they want to form in our students, and why? That's the question, and it is, on the most basic level, a moral one. There are moral decisions, and these are moral goals. Bloom thinks he knows where we derive the goals of our educational system. He goes on to write in that same book that the kind of man any educational system seeks to produce is determined by the political regime in power. According to Bloom, every nation needs citizens, this is a quote, quote, needs citizens who are in accord with its fundamental principle. In other words, in Bloom's world, the driving factor is the state. So then the question becomes, okay, fine, what's our nation's fundamental principle? Now, according to Bloom, the chief enemy of democracy, of a pluralistic, secular society is, can you guess? Huh? Religion? Religion? No. Well, yes and no. It's simply this. The chief enemy is the man who is not open to everything, affirming of everything, tolerant of everything. Therefore, quote, the point of the modern educational system is to propagandize acceptance of different ways by cultivating indifference to ideas. In other words, the peace and stability of a democratic, pluralistic society, society depends on what C.S. Lewis called citizens without chests. The goal of our educational system is to cultivate indifference to ideas, to teach that ideas have no consequences. This is what keeps the wheel spinning. Now, this is Bloom, okay? This is what Bloom's setting forward to oppose an attack, okay? And it's insightful, right? But does it hit the mark? Yeah, but not quite. 
Everything that has a goal in front of it has a God behind it. Bloom, as a secular homosexual Jew, is part of the system, so much so that he takes the real problem for granted. He assumes it. What does he assume? He assumes that the state is primary. The state is, of course, obviously the God driving everything to be worshipped. But it's not the political regime that determines the moral goals of education. It's the God that stands behind the system, the religion. Just so happens that the God of secularism is the state. The state in a secular society is what must be worshipped. The state must be adored, it must be bowed to, and so the state stands, demanding the worship of our children, of our students. Tim Bailey is fond of pointing out that authority operates in the world the same way that energy does. You can't create it, you can't destroy it, you can only transfer it. If you reject the authority of the king, you're faced with the authority of the mob. Think of the French Revolution, right? You reject the tyranny of the king, you don't have freedom. You just have the tyranny of the mob, the masses. When a culture, a society, or a nation rejects God the Father and His moral law as its guiding principles, when families and churches abdicate the authority delegated to them by God, there is a void that must be filled. There is a vacuum, and it is almost always the state that fills that void. It is the political regime. It is Satan in the city of man waging war against the city of God. So Bloom in his critique factors God out altogether and simply assumes that it's perfectly appropriate for the state to direct the moral character of its citizens. This is the state of America. We live in a world in which the authority of the home and the church is being transferred to the state. And it has been for a very long time. First as soft-cell syncretism, where being a Christian and being a good American began to be conflated in the minds of Americans until they were virtually synonymous. You can't be a good American without being a good Christian. You can't be a good Christian without being a good American. I often tell people I grew up in a pagan home. It's not exactly true. I say that I grew up in a pagan home, but my dad would tell you he's a Christian. Why? Because he's a good flag-flying patriot who loves apple pie and baseball and who watches documentary, uh, Civil War documentaries on the History Channel. Right? That's what it means to be a Christian. Or that's what it meant to be a Christian. He goes to church at least on Christmas and Easter. Being a good American at one time supplanted being a good Christian. Being a good American dictated what being a good Christian is. But now we've reached the point... We've moved past soft-cell syncretism into hard-cell apostasy. It doesn't matter anymore. Americanism has triumphed over Christianity, at least for a time. Being a good American no longer means being a Christian. In fact, Christians are the only people who cannot be good Americans. Let's kill them. We're casting off the hypocrisy of our Christian rhetoric altogether and throwing it in what we suppose is the dustbin of history. This is a world in which the fatherhood of God and the freedom of man is being exchanged for the tyranny of the state. And in order for the state to maintain and cultivate her supremacy, she must form the moral character of her citizens in such a way that serves her purposes. Our educational system is one massive battleground, one in which the enemy has co-opted all of the terms and claims to hold all of the keys. Outside of our churches, our universities are arguably ground zero for the fight over the future of our nation. 
And this is where Bloom was right. The central virtue of American education is, can't we all just get along? It's, an, it's assumed uncritically by the academics of our time, and it's force-fed to our children from kindergarten on. Now, I hope most of you already realize this. I hope most of this is obvious to you. I'm doing my best to explain it to you because you need to know the big picture of what's going on. We can't prepare our kids or ourselves for college if we're blind to the reality of the world we live in. Education and universities are necessarily servants. The question is, what God, what ideals, what goals drive the educational system? Who are they serving? And as I have said and will keep saying, the vast majority of our universities are servants of the state. It's crucial to understand this or we will not understand how to prepare our kids to plunder the universities we send them to and come out the better for it, stronger, equipped to cut off the enemy's head with his own sword, which I do think is possible. They're very difficult. And we won't understand how to minister to university students that are in our churches. And we won't understand to help our own students, for those of you who are professors. But it'll be helpful, I think, for us to understand the basic mechanics of how all of this works. Okay? Universities are extremely potent, powerful, and effective machines for corrupting their students. And there are a lot of powerful factors that come into play and create a very volatile situation. The university has two huge weapons in its arsenal. The first is the trust of parents and students alike because of their unquestioning allegiance. The second is the natural vulnerability of the students because of their state and place in life, because of their circumstances. In the world. Education is worshipped in America because success is worshipped in America. In education, we're told, is the only way we can be successful. It's put forth as the solution and savior to all the world's problems. So if someone is a criminal, what do we need to do? We need to educate them. If, uh, what's the problem with third world countries? Lack of education. Each and every one of us buy into this lie in one way or another. And at the pinnacle of the educational system stands the university. They are the temples of our culture with their professors, our high priests. In their hands they hold slips of paper that they confer upon their faithful disciples. Said slips of paper are promissory notes of future success and happiness called degrees. Each one easily attainable for a small fee, a temple tax, a tithe. Which, of course, is what all parents desire most for their kids, and all kids desire most for themselves. So, trusting parents hand their children over to specialists, men and women who are expert in fitting their children for success. And our children, from their earliest days, have been waiting for this time of their lives, a time that's promised to be the best, most fulfilling, most exciting time ever. They are at a critical time in life, and they're very, very vulnerable. Most of them have never lived outside their homes, so college will be a time of major transition. And when things are in transition, things are volatile and vulnerable. 
it will primarily be a time of differentiation. Differentiation is good. Differentiation is natural. It begins happening in middle school. It's what happens when you decide and wake up that you're not really comfortable hugging your dad in public anymore, right? Differentiation is when you begin to think, hey, who am I? What am I really like? What am I really into? What do I want to do with my life? What do I really believe? What do I disagree with? You're trying to think for yourself. There's pockets of rebellion or all-out rebellion. You push limits and boundaries. College is right there, right in the gap, ready to ramp things up by orders of magnitude. All of a sudden, outside of the home, outside of the rules, on their own, they can look back on you as parents. You can look back on your parents' students and judge them. Sit as outsiders. See their sins. And it will happen. It must happen. It's unavoidable. Here's the problem. And I think you know where I'm going. Instead of helping college students through this time of transition in a way that helps them respect and honor their parents, universities understand exactly what's going on. And they calculate to take full advantage of it. They jump right into the gap. And they insert themselves right into the spot of the natural authorities. Oh, you're beginning to judge your parents. Here, let me help you with that. You think your parents are stupid? You have no idea how right you are. Let me tell you all about it. Come to me. I will nurse you. I will be your alma mater. They feed the immaturity and pride of the students that come to them, and they weaken the will by creating a culture that seethes with lust and rebellion. And then... There are the classes themselves. In the classroom, very wise and unbiased professors stand up and begin to chip away at the prejudices of their students. They begin challenging the basic presuppositions of their students under the pretense that their stated goal is to free their students to think independently. But the real goal is to leave students floating in a sea of relativism without a tether. The only tether, the only possible tether, being the enlightened professor, the destroyer of prejudices and opener of eyes. It's a very subtle thing that's done. But eyes open to what? Prejudices replaced with what other prejudices? Presuppositions replaced with what alternate presuppositions? Students aren't thinking that far. They just know... This is different from my dumb parents. Also, hey, look, sex. Now, some of you may think that I'm overstating my case, so I'm going to read an excerpt from this book right here. This is called Unprotected. It's by a woman named Miriam Grossman, also a secular Jew. Funny how, well... She is a campus psychiatrist at Cornell. Okay? At Cornell. That's Ivy League, in case you didn't know that. I contend that radical social ideologies are also to blame, especially when they've spread from the classroom to the counseling center. I once assumed campus medicine and psychology had one priority, student well-being. I'm no longer so naive. Radical politics pervades my profession and common sense has vanished. 
Not long ago, a psychiatrist might call casual sexual activity mindless and empty. Before political correctness muzzled our nation in the 90s, a campus physician might advise a student that it is love and lifelong fidelity that bring joy and liberated sensuality and provide the best insurance against sexually transmitted diseases. An unwanted pregnancy and abortion, these were weighty issues. We understood that men and women are profoundly different and weren't afraid to say so. It was clear that liaisons outside a committed relationship could be hazardous and a young woman would be wise to wait until someone serious came along. A sexually transmitted infection, even one easily cured, was a serious matter. Self-restraint built character and character was something to strive for. Certain behaviors were abnormal and those who practiced them needed help. Traditional marriage and parenthood were valued milestones. To search for meaning and to make sacrifices for a higher purpose, these were noble endeavors that defined our humanity. Things have changed. Now young people are advised to use latex and have a limited number of partners, as opposed to unlimited? There is tacit approval of promiscuity and experimentation. One study of college students speaks of, quote, primary and casual sex partners, end quote. Infection with one of the sexually transmitted viruses is a rite of passage. It comes with the territory. Abortion is the removal of unwanted tissue, sort of like a tonsillectomy. Campus counselors urge students to get enough sleep, eat right, exercise, and make time for themselves. Clubs funded by student fees celebrate risky fringe behaviors. Young women think motherhood can be delayed indefinitely. Women's health teaches them only about preventing pregnancy. Traditional marriage and a mother and father are just one option. There are other alternatives, all equally valid. These changes are the result of social agendas foisted on the campus community, and in my work at the Counseling Center, I see the consequences daily. Dangerous behaviors are a personal choice. Judgments are prohibited. They might offend. Students have gender-free partners. She puts it in quotes. What difference does it make whether male or female? Attendance at a multiculturalism workshop to increase my sensitivity and inclusivity and confront my sexism, racism, and homophobia is mandatory. When lesbians have a child, it's time to celebrate, but when Catholics or Mormons have their six, that's, well, kind of extreme, and eyes roll. Staff are encouraged to attend a meeting featuring a transgendered person and his therapist who describes the journey from female to male. The mental health benefits of church attendance are never discussed. Instead, a past president of the American Psychological Association declares organized religions a major source of social injustice. A committee of that organization is worried about what I think and how I speak. They advise me to never assume that a patient is heterosexual or that sexual activity might lead to pregnancy. I should avoid thinking of men and women as opposites, as in opposite sex. I should not use this term, the committee cautions, quote, to avoid polarization, end quote. My profession has been hijacked. I cannot do my job. My patients are suffering, and I am fed up. Where I work, we're stuck on certain issues, yet neglect others. We ask about childhood abuse, but not last week's hookups. We want to know how many, we want to know how many cigarettes and coffees she has each day, but not how many abortions are in her past. We consider the stress caused by parental expectations and rising tuition, but neglect the anguish of herpes, the hazards of promiscuity, and the looming fertility issues for women who always put career first. We strive to combat suicide, but shun discussion of God and ultimate meaning. Inaccurate and ideology-driven health education misinforms our sons and daughters, increasing their vulnerability. HIV is presented as an equal opportunity infection. Despite substantial failure rates, condoms are endlessly enshrined. Young women are led to believe that, like men, they can delay childbearing indefinitely. 
The emotional consequences of STDs and abortion are downplayed. A popular Ivy League website includes tips on behaviors that were classified as mental disorders in the 80s, the pre-PC era when I was trained. But as of 1994, sexual sadism and masochism are considered disorders by the APA only if they cause a person distress or impairment. Ten years later, following this controversial decision, the website was recognized for its outstanding contribution to the profession of health education through technology. You probably didn't know what some, consider, what some insider psychologists are now revealing. That quote, psychology, psychiatry, and social work has been captured by an ultra-liberal agenda and, there, and that there are special interest mafias in our national organizations. Likely you didn't hear that certain points of view are squelched, that there are horror stories of shunning and intimidation and that many will not speak up fearing ridicule, vicious attack, or loss of tenure or stature. The past president of the APA in a book about this alarming situation wrote, I lived through the McCarthy era and the Hollywood witch hunts and as abominable and as, abominable as these were, there was not the insidious sense of intellectual intimidation that currently exists under, the, under political correctness. Now just one more section. As a parent, I know that behind most students are a mother and father who are worried, hoping, praying for their child. I want to warn them. In addition to binge drinking and date rape, there is another danger on campus that warrants your attention. You probably assume that if your child needs to visit the Student Health or Counseling Center, a free service after payment of mandatory fees and insurance, the physician or therapist will be a neutral agent providing objective information and guidance. Think again. The nurse teaching your daughter about herpes, the, so the social worker reassuring your son about his homosexual thoughts, these people may have a vision for social change that you don't share. They may see their jobs as an avenue for activism, and one of their goals is to influence your child. The social change some of them envision is profound. They hope to destabilize a truth of science and civilization, that the sexes are deeply and essentially different. Their goal is an androgynous culture where the differences between male and female are discounted or denied and the bond between them robbed of singularity. I contend that to turn the therapy session or clinic visit into an instrument promoting this agenda is a corruption of the health profession. It demands a response. It's bad enough that androgyny, promiscuity, and alternative lifestyle or sexualities are promoted by Hollywood. It's altogether another matter to have them endorsed by professional health organizations and college administrators. I know that's a long quote. But do you get it? When students arrive on campus at Indiana University, one of the first things you're treated to is a sex talk, followed by a lecture on the diversity of our campus, which is our university making very clear the expectations of our students. A couple years ago, I did an experiment. I took and read cover to cover the IDS, the student newspaper, every day for the first two weeks of school. Every single day, nine times out of ten on the front page during those first two weeks was an article promoting homosexuality, promoting, propagandizing. They were doing their job to make it very clear to you what is expected of you. They were proactively assaulting the consciences of all Christians. During Welcome Week at IU, a week before classes start, that's when freshmen move in and come into the dorms and become acquainted with their surroundings, IU holds an event called Culture Fest. 
I don't know if it's still like this because I haven't been in a long time, but it used to be that at the height of... I know that this part is true. At the height of Culture Fest is a gay drag show called Miss Gay IU. Except they don't tell you that. They call it a beauty pageant. And they have all these gay men in drag on stage that they're parading around for you to lust after, and then it's announced that this is Miss Gay IU. It's meant to be a shock moment. Complimentary condoms are given out during first floor meetings in some dorms. All of this stuff is in week one of classes. I know I use not every school. I know that we're home to the Kinsey Institute. I know that Bloomington is one of the top five gay-friendly cities in the country. But it's also just another Midwest research institution. So whether you want to think of it as ordinary... Midwest Research Institution or Paysetter and Sexual Liberalism if you want to know where we're headed where universities are headed what the cultural ideals are what are the goals of our nation's intelligentsia you need to look closely at the university campus and I contend that this campus is a good case study no matter what you think about it there's a reason that university communities are unique communities. There's a reason why they are prime retirement spots for ultra-liberals. They're utopian experiments, serving the will of the state and securing disciples for her. And in the end, what you're left with is what happened when we invited Doug Wilson to come and speak on campus last year. I have a clip. I don't know that I'm going to play it because I don't know if you're going to be able to see or hear or anything like that. Have you all seen it? Have you all seen what happened when Doug came to IU? Has anybody not seen it? All right. I hope this works because it's not tested.
Okay, that's a sample. And this is going back on, because goodness. We invited Doug to speak about God's order for sexuality. That's it. Very simple, very basic. It was just hijacked. They took it over. It was absurd. So thank goodness that there are good, strong churches in all of our university communities and good campus ministries to take care of our students and children, right? If only. At the very best, most churches and college communities have difficulty embracing the responsibility to college students. It's hard because college students are very, very needy. They're demanding, they're time-consuming. I'm talking to you guys. You're demanding, you're time-consuming, and you don't provide very much financial return. Not to be crass, but college students absorb everyone's time and energy and rarely even tithe, let alone serve in their churches. If they do tithe, it's next to nothing. Now, we have good students here. I love you guys. You serve and give. But that's generally true. So if they're in your church for a few years, and it often takes a few years to get them on track and stable if they come to you, you walk through some of the most difficult and painful things in the world with them for four years of their life, and then they're gone. They're off in the world doing their own thing. Often you never see or hear from them again. And that's a good scenario. Just as likely they don't stick around that long. They find something to be offended about. They turn away and reject you when you tell them they have to stop having sex with their girlfriend or when they have to break up with their non-Christian boyfriend. And in their stupid, fickle, naive spiritual pride, they run off and spread gossip about you. And they reject your instruction and they turn away from the faith and they apostatize. Or apostatize. It's messy, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching work. Who has the faith for it? College students are hard work, and churches and college towns get weary. Even if they try in the first place, it's hard to keep it up. And you can see why, right? That's why our churches have outsourced their work to parachurch ministries who come in and fill the gap. They abdicate the churches, their responsibilities to slick, well-funded parachurch organizations, which sounds kind of awesome. They're specialists. They've got their own funding. They're here on a mission to minister to college students, to shape the world shapers, to plug them into the local church. Except it doesn't work out that way. Parachurch campus ministries, while often full, full of very earnest and devoted people, they can be extremely destructive. And here's how it often works. Students come to big-time university from their small-town church or big-city church, doesn't matter. Campus ministry is hip, cool, exciting, fun. You've got two to three hundred students all in a room together praising God with a cool, hip band. It's exciting. Also happens to be sexually charged. It's a lot of fun. Students feel like they're coming alive spiritually for the first time. They think the parachurch is where it's at, God's gift to man. And they judge their parents and their churches and find them wanting. Then they graduate and they can't find a church as exciting or happening as their campus ministry and so they just quit. 
I can't tell you how many of my friends that describes. It's like almost universally true. My friends in Campus Crusade and InterVarsity, they went on staff or they left the faith. And there was no in-between. Except for me. There's a few get caught in the middle. I've seen that scenario happen over and over again. What's going on there? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. They're playing the exact same game that the university is. There's a reason why, when I was a student, the testimony at every single crew meeting was from a student who stood up and said, well, I grew up in a church that was dead and lifeless and my parents didn't really believe and there wasn't any real faith there. But then I came here and it was really hip and cool and exciting and fun and I met Jesus in a real dynamic and exciting way. Every time. No non-church students. Maybe it's true. I'm sure in some cases it was. Maybe. But maybe the church that you came from wasn't actually so bad. Maybe. Maybe your parents are Christians who love you. Maybe somebody has been preying on you. Maybe somebody has seen you come alive spiritually. Or maybe you've been a Christian a long time because... Sorry. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time, but because of the necessity of your circumstances, living outside the home, taking on more personal responsibility, you're just coming to own the faith your parents raised you into in a deeper way. Because you're growing up. Because you're differentiating. Because you're becoming a man or a woman. The campus ministry pops in, claims the credit for it, seals your allegiance, and sucks you dry, and then kicks you to the curb. They're displacing parents and churches. Some good, some bad. There are many, many bad churches. Regardless, they're taking advantage of the immaturity and pride of their very vulnerable students. Just so happens they're doing it in spiritual terms in Jesus' language instead of academic terms. And of course, it requires all the same goals. No conflict, no embarrassment, Instead of challenging the system and challenging students to see through the system, they're encouraged in the campus ministries to enjoy the system as just another part of life. A Christian man or woman leaves home, has to make the faith their own in a way they've never needed to before. It's a natural process of maturation. Campus ministers, eager to boast numbers, jump in and blow it all up to gain disciples, not for Jesus, not for the church, but for themselves and their parachurch organization, which is why in the end, there's little lasting fruit. So what to do? I wonder how we are on time. What did you say? Thanks. What to do? Rob the temples and crush the idols. First, not many parents in here. You should have very different goals for your education. 
and for the education of your children than the world does. You need to cultivate biblical goals. Education is only a servant. Cultivate biblical goals in yourself and in your children. You do not want to worship at the altar of success. If that's where you worship, no matter what you say with your mouth, your children will pick it up. They will learn. They will worship what you worship. A godly young man needs to prepare himself to provide for and protect his family and to subdue the earth. Education is a good servant for that, maybe. A godly young woman needs to prepare herself to be a helpmeet to her husband. These are biblical goals. Both need to prepare to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And education, even a secular one, can be very helpful to those ends if undertaken with open eyes as a plunderer of temples. Someone who knows what they want, who knows what they're being fed, who knows how to get what they need and to leave the garbage behind. But with eyes open and hearts free from the love of money and worldly success and intellectual pride, the question, a very serious one, needs to be asked, should I even go to college? Should my daughter go to college and face these dangers and temptations? Should she take on debt in the process? What are the goals that drive you? What's to be gained and why? To what end? If you're going to send your children to college, if you're going to go to college, you must prepare for it spiritually. Fathers, if you don't prepare your children to leave the nest and stand firm on their own, if you abdicate your responsibility here, you are complicit in their corruption when they get to college. No matter where it comes from. You may not blame the university if you send them to it unprepared to face it. You may not. Some of the worst train wrecks I've ever seen are overprotected homeschool children. In fact, if my memory serves me, and maybe Alex, you can correct this, I've only known, well, this very, very few homeschool kids that I've known that have not dropped out of school, that have made it all the way to graduation without either dropping out or crashing and burning. The sheer number of students that simply come from homeschool families and just drop out in the middle of the first semester will boggle your mind. The solution here isn't more sheltering and protecting, it's just training and equipping. I homeschool my kids, okay? I'm not trying to be down on homeschooling. But homeschooling doesn't save our children. It can't, we can't be sacramentalists about homeschooling. It doesn't work ex opere operato. Students need to be taught to fear and love and know the Lord and raised up to be men and women. So how do you prep your kids? We teach them to take responsibility for themselves and for others. And you teach them to engage with the world as men and women. To engage with pagans who are nice and sweet and kind. Pagans who are better Christians than they are. If you get what I mean. Because that's where students will get tripped up. They'll get off to school, they'll get into class, they'll have a gay professor who's the kindest man in the world. And they won't know what to think. 
He'll be bright and articulate, and they'll think he's not the mo- the monster that I expected. And then everything will be on the table. They'll begin to sympathize with him. Part of your training of your children, part of your own preparation, students, has to be engaging with the world. Catechism is good. Hospitality is essential. Fathers, your kids need to be engaged with non-Christians from wee bitty. And I don't care how you do it. If you homeschool them, great. Get them involved in sports. Get them involved in 4-H. Get them involved. I don't care what it is. They need to know non-Christians. and They need you holding their hand, teaching them how to engage with things foreign. You need to have non-Christians into your home, around your table, saying things that are just wrong. And your kids need to see you engage with that in a faithful way and then talk to them at bedtime about what happened at the dinner table. Teach your kids how to engage with the world so they're not blindsided when they go to school. Teach and show your kids their depravity every opportunity you can get. Know your sin, students. Know the deceitful power of sin. College students, as a rule, are so proud and so mature and so oblivious to the deceitful power of sin in their own twisted and perverse hearts. They can't hear anything because of it. They don't know how to take a rebuke. They don't know how to take discipline. They think, yeah, 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 I know that stuff, but I'm different. They can't see or feel themselves walking towards the cliff. And they can't hear the rebuke because of it. They don't know how to be told no. To discipline your kids' fathers, teach them how to take a rebuke in others, teach them to recognize love in the word no, teach them to see their sin and teach them to kill it. Students, burn John Owen's phrase into your brain, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You cannot be passive in this world. Either you are actively killing sin or sin is actively killing you. There is no middle ground. And lastly, above all, and this is the most important thing I can possibly say to you, don't pick a college. Pick a church. Don't pick a college. Pick a church. Don't pick a Christian college. Pick a church. The state understands the importance of character formation and it's jealous to shape the character of our children as early as possible. And it's ready to punish us if we're found to be stepping out of line in how we raise them. Character formation, though, does not belong to the state. It belongs to the home and it belongs to the church. When your children leave home, there's a real transfer being made, and it ought to be made not to the state, not to her priests, but to the church. Character formation is more important, more foundational, and actually a stronger indicator of future success than anything. Character matters, and the shaping of the character 
of our students should only be trusted to those who carry the weight of their eternal souls on their hearts. College professors, you can play an active role in this, but and you ought to. You ought to be shaping the character of your students toward godliness. But goodness, it's the church. College students need fathers and mothers in the faith. They need fathers and mothers who will nurture them and care for them and shepherd them and rebuke them and help them navigate the dangerous waters of the university and the perils of dating and courtship and the difficulties of coming to terms with the sins of their mothers and fathers and their home churches in a way that is respectful and sweet. And you need to be an active part of that as a parent, but you can't do it by yourself. You need help. Student, you can't do that on your own. You need help. So pick a church. Students, pick a church that will fight for you. A pastor that will fight for you. A church that understands the the idols of the university. Find a church that has shepherds who are willing to die hard deaths for their sheep. A church with families that are willing to embrace the sacrifice that comes to ministering to college students and who count it a joy and a privilege. Find a church that lets its college students make mistakes in the name of cultivating zeal and leadership. You know, we're talking about confessing Christ at the university is where we're supposed to be driving to. I was uh, talking to a leader and crew not too long ago, and he was telling me how, uh, how idiotic some of the men in our college ministry are, or were back then. We don't have many idiots right now. We need more of them. <clears throat> because um, Idiotic because they are zealous young men. Do you know how many stupid things they say? I said, yeah, they say and do some pretty dumb things. But you know what? My men are going to be leaders. You take your men and you castrate them. You won't let them make a mistake. You won't let them say anything that might embarrass you. You won't let them say or do anything that might make a fool of you. Because it's all about you cultivating your image. Let them say and do dumb things in the name of Christ. Let them love their professors and their fellow students. Let them screw it up. They're 19. Let's squash their zeal. Teach them wisdom. That's what you're there for. Let them stand up in their classes and make fools of themselves. Let them say things that are wrong. In the name of their love for Christ and for their fellow students. They'll learn. A couple years back, I had a student who went to a Secular Alliance meeting. They had a speaker there. It was a special meeting. Um, He was talking about something dumb, like, can you be good without God or something like that. And uh, it was the same night as our large group meeting. It was just before, so he showed up late. 
asked him why he was late, and he said, well, I went to this thing, and I had to stay afterwards for the Q&A, because somebody had to say something. This kid, kid was a sophomore, maybe, you know. Um, and so he, he did, he told me about it, and he stood up and made, I'm sure, a complete idiot of himself, and made all the other Christians in the room furious. He's trying to deal with this guy calling the scriptures immoral because of the genocide of the Canaanites and all that stuff, right? And so he gets up and he says something to the effect of God's absolutely right to do that because the Canaanites were wicked and they deserved every bit of the judgment they received. And this guy says, well, if you believe that, then you need to be locked up. And the student says, well, I deserve worse than that. I deserve hell. Right? <laughs> If I told you his name, you might laugh because you know that he was just, he's probably one of the least articulate, naturally naturally articulate students that we have. It didn't matter. He's a hero. He's a man. He's a leader. I know how he said it. I knew he was stuttering. I knew he was bumbling. I knew everybody in that room that named Christ was ashamed of him. But let me tell you, give me one student like that for every 100 or 200 you have in your big-time campus ministry. One student who has a conscience, who loves the Lord, who loves his fellow students, who's willing to stand up for what's right and true. And this kid, he, he grew up in a PCUSA secular church. You know, just mainline church. In other words, at the end of the day, be Christians. Be Christians when it comes to the education of your children. Students, be Christians. We need well-formed Christian men and women who can say no to the system. Who can peace out. I don't need the system. I don't need college because this is, I have biblical goals. Or who can jump right into the system and swim upstream. Who can get what they need, who can throw away the garbage, and who are unashamed to bear the reproach of Christ when they do so. And we need churches that protect and shepherd students, that rescue students from the jaws of the wicked, and who preach against the idolatries of the university. That's what we need. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others. But do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.